This is from a live stream that I did with Doug Cummings, who I first interviewed almost 10 years ago. He talks about his long reporting career and a safety handbook called Escaping the Ozone. Well, first I want to talk to you about your media experience. I know we talked about it like 10 years ago, but you know, in and your everybody book- everybody should remember, right? I mean, 10 years, that's nothing. Right. But okay, so you, you wrote this book, Escaping the Ozone, which is fantastic. And it's an excellent resource. It's like even an excellent handbook for people to refer to. But, you know, I was just wondering, you do mention your reporting experience in the book. And can you talk about that? A little bit. I mean, I, I, I don't know that I said a whole lot about it, but I, I spent about 35 years in the media, all told. Okay. Um, I started in uh, Kansas, which... Um, actually was a great experience uh, when you're at a, a little, essentially a little station. It was, and it was probably the most well-known station in Kansas, WIBW. You know, you start out like that and anybody in the media knows that you get hands-on for everything at a TV and radio station when you're just starting out mm-hmm. uh, in a small market like that. Um, but it, uh, it gave me a, a great experience, a jumping off experience. And I did a lot of crime stuff. I did a lot of legislative stuff. Some people nowadays would equate the two. Um, But uh, I I got really the the best education that anybody could get in law. Um, I had friends who were law professors and and lawyers and and district attorneys. And it was really, it was fascinating. It got me into budgets for the, you know, for the county and and the state. So all of those things really, it's a great education. You really don't get completely in school unless you're in a, in a specific program that, that leads you into the, you know, into the, the finer points of uh, reporting, which I ended up in. But I started there, went to Kansas City after a few years, was in Kansas City for a while at uh, KCMO, had great tutelage there. There was a guy that I looked up to as a mentor who was kind of the crime guy. Uh, very much like uh, John Drummond here, except he was doing radio. And, and then, then by I, the way, just to interrupt, um, I did interview John Drummond, the legend for my podcast and for the INBA. So if people want to listen to that fantastic yeah. interview. Yeah. Well, John's just, I mean, he's 92, I think. And he's, he's just, he remembers everything. He's got, he's got a quick answer for everything. He's just a really mm-hmm. smart guy. Mm-hmm. And he's a repository of information about the, yeah. the mob. That's for sure. And a lot of respect for that people like him, especially he was on the ground for so long. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I had a I had a chance to work with him a few times on different stories. And it was just it was great to watch him mm-hmm. watch him do interviews. And, and his whole presentation was just I mean, John's a great guy. But, in I, you know, I got more experience in Kansas City, decided to get out of the business. I was never going to be a reporter again when I left Kansas City because I was burned out pretty much. And I moved up here and immediately got back into the business. Uh, you know, when you're out and they pull you back in. Uh, but uh, I ended up uh, going through a program called the Public Affairs Reporting Program at uh, University of Illinois Springfield. Was that with Charlie Wheeler? Uh, no, actually, it was with Bill Miller. Yeah. Uh, Bill was was the, the originator. Well, Paul Simon started the program uh, and then Bill was the uh, the original professor in charge of the program for a long time. And he was a longtime Springfield and state government reporter. And then when I had graduated, uh, Charlie took over a couple of years later. And two, really, I mean, you can't learn from from better people than that. They, they both were experienced on the street. 
They know the ins and outs of, of state government, uh, you know, like we know the roads in our hometown. And uh, they really, really gave me a, a great education on, on state government. But I also was, was reporting here at the same time I was doing uh, legislative stuff for WTMX. Um, and at that point, I, one day it was, I, I tell the story, one day I was covering a fire that I thought would be good for the morning on WTMX. And um, I, uh, I just happened to call uh, WMAQ on kind of a whim, thinking, you know, they're all, all news all the time. And I figured I'd be able to, to pitch something to them. And Jim Frank, who was then the news director, was covering a shift that night. And he, got, he and I got to talking and he said, well, call me back tomorrow and I'll, I'll see if I can send you out on stuff. And that, that started me off on probably the best seven years that, that anybody who was interested in street reporting could ever have. Mm -hmm. uh, Jim was a great guy and uh, we lost him too soon. But uh, Cheryl Langston was, was uh, for a while the, the program director there, Bonnie Buck. Um, you know, John uh, or uh, Joe Buck's sister. Um, but uh, it, uh, it just was a, uh, it was really an amazing experience to, to be able to have Chicago kind of at my front door and to have my pick and choose of any story that I wanted to go out on. And I ended up doing mostly crime and, and uh, disaster stuff. Uh, I ended up uh, going to Columbine a few years later, but um, it, uh, I morphed from when WMAQ went off the air. I went to WGN for a couple of years, and uh, you know, it, it's all a, it, it's kind of all a blur. But it, it was a, it's a nice blur. I can remember very fondly a number of the stories that I covered, and not so fondly some of the others. But one of the the things that that I I ended up doing really was talking to victims every day, usually on their worst day because they would have been the victim of a fire, of a, you know, a, a shooting, a crime of some kind, or they would be related to or friends with a victim who had been murdered or uh, involved in some kind of a disaster. So um, you, you get a feeling after a while for what victims need, what they have, what they, uh, you know, their, their desperation sometimes to get back a sense of control that they lost when it was taken away from them in a crime or whatever it might be. Uh, so I found that that was really one of my, my causes was trying to showcase what victims go through um, when they are uh, victimized. Uh, so when the 4th of July happened last year in Highland Park, I had retired from broadcasting and for about 15 years, I had been director of security for a, a church up here uh, in the suburbs. And it, uh, it, after, I, I knew I had to go to the, uh, to the shootings because I wanted to talk to people who had seen them to see how they had evolved and what the reaction had been, what people were thinking. Uh, because for, for a long time, I had been doing security consulting and mostly uh, talking to people who, who didn't know a whole lot about personal security mm. and wanted to know more. Yeah. And I had written a book, uh, this same book, Escaping the Ozone, about uh, six, seven years ago for the members of my church. I put it online for anybody that wanted to read it. But Is it still um, online? 
Well, it's this same book. This is the second edition of that book. And this has been revised and updated uh, based on what I learned from the, the victims of uh, the July 4th uh, sniper attack. What really was the, the, the prompt there was that they really needed help. And, yeah. you know, I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a counselor. But I do know something about personal security. And one of the things, again, I'll, I'll say it again, one of the things that victims really want is a sense of control back, a sense of control of their lives. And there is really nothing better for somebody who's been the victim of a crime than to be able to think that they could beat the next thing that might happen to them uh, or avoid it completely. And my thinking is to help them avoid it completely. And that, that's the reason I put this book out again and, the, and decided that all the proceeds this time would go to the Highland Park Community Foundation. They are doing a tremendous job in helping get victims sorted out, organized, uh, and back on their feet. Yeah, Highland Park, I grew up in Evanston. Um, Highland Park was the kind of place where people went to avoid problems and- Always, yeah. The city, you know, uh, is extremely shocking. Yeah, that was the thing. That was the thing that got me is, you know, I had covered probably a thousand crime scenes, maybe more. And some of the things that I covered, I just don't talk about because they were so horrible. But this was in my town. It was a block long scene of absolute devastation. Um, I've seen that at tornadoes and I've seen it in in a smaller way, at, at most crime scenes, you know, they're a mess. But this was a block of overturned chairs and children's toys and strollers and shoes. People run out of their shoes when they're really scared and blood. And it just, it got to me um, like probably no other crime scene ever had uh, because it was in my town. It was you know, I experienced what people always say at a crime scene. If you wait long enough, somebody will say, well, I didn't think it would ever happen. Well, Highland Park is probably one of the last places I would have thought it would have happened. Yeah, because that's what I'm saying. People would leave certain areas and they their goal Absolutely. would be Highland Park because it's so yes. incredibly beautiful. Great downtown. Yeah. Really nice homes. Yeah. That's you're describing all of the North Shore. Yeah. And and Highland Park is is kind of the heart of the North Shore north anyway. And uh, it was just a real, real shock. Well, okay, so I just wanna go back to your uh, media career. We're gonna talk about your book, which is excellent. But when you were in Kansas and you said you didn't wanna do it, and then you went to Chicago and you said you want you got back into the media, what made you wanna get back into the media? You can't get away from it. You know, you really can't get away from it. It's, yeah. it's, a, uh, <laughs> it's a drug when you're, when you're a reporter. It's uh, a situation that, uh, you know, you, you start hearing, for me, I started hearing sirens and- uh, Okay, you were talking about talking to victims of crimes or disasters and so forth. Did it upset you? How did you deal with it? No, it really didn't at the time. I was, I was, I mean, I, friends might say that I was affected by certain stories yeah. and there were certain stories that got to me. Mm -hmm. um, anything involving children yeah. uh, is a real heartbreaker and you can't, you can't avoid it. But I think it's the it's the adrenaline rush. Uh, overall, it's the adrenaline rush to get to a story first, 
to report it first, uh, to have all the facts before anybody else does. And uh, I think it's I think it's the I think it's the feeling of being in the know. You know, I think that when when we sit in front of our TVs and kind of gather it all in, uh, sometimes we don't pay a whole lot of attention to the fact that there are real people being affected by this. And I liked to get into the middle of that so that I could try and bring it to my listeners. And I was always, I've always been victim centric, I think, but the, the whole idea is to get someplace first, report the story first and get the information out so it can help people. Maybe a crime story doesn't help them directly, but it sort of says the evil is out there. And unfortunately now, I don't think anybody needs to be told that. No. I think everybody knows that the evil is out there. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of where I was, was, uh, you know, and, and in weather stories, you know, you try to get the information out to where people shouldn't go. And in fires, you want to let people in the neighborhood know what's going on because they've heard all the activity in the, you know, out on the street. Mm -hmm. But um, there, it was a very personal thing to me. I, I wanted to tell a good story that people would listen to and in some way be affected by. And uh, oftentimes that's the story of the victim. Yeah. So how do you feel about that? I mean, is it right, quote unquote, right to approach a victim right away or? I think you have to leave it to them. I have found particularly at major stories, and I can think of uh, several off the top of my head. One was the, uh, the horrible crash of a, uh, a train and a school bus a number of years ago in Fox River Grove. Another was the Brown's chicken case. Oh, gosh. Um, you know, another, another was Columbine. People gravitate to the scene, and oftentimes victims or witnesses uh, will come back and want to tell their story. They want to vent. One of the things that I avoided doing, and I would, uh, I got it crossways with news directors and, and other reporters about it, is that I would not go immediately to the parents of a kid who had just been killed. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's, personally, I think that's an invasion of privacy, and I wouldn't want that to be what happened to me. I, I know there are reporters who watch this who look at it much differently, that that's the heart of the story, and you've got to be able to bring it home to people. But one thing I've noticed over the years is that people who do those kinds of interviews, it gets to them when they do it every single day. And I know of, of one friend who has had treatment for PTSD because of that. Oh, you mean being the reporter? Yes, it, it very much affected the person. And I think that there are probably, in fact, there are, there are programs and I, I uh, brought one of the instructors to a, to a seminar once uh, for the headline club, Chicago headline club, talking about the effect that covering disasters and fires and crimes uh, eventually can have on a reporter. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, the young reporters really don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. They're in and out so fast of some of these, these uh, scenes, but it's a, it's a serious problem. And if you leave it go and don't treat it, uh, I talk about it all the time, but uh, if you, if you internalize that kind of thing after a while, the stress will break you. It may not happen right away, 
Uh, I know other former reporters who deal with it in very different ways and their lives have been really ripped apart by it. They may not realize that it's PTSD, but after 30 years of dealing with nothing but destruction, uh, that can be a real problem. Yeah. And you can see you, reporters have the same, the same contact with it as, as uh, police officers and firefighters. They may not be up close and, and treating a victim or, or seeing the immediately walking in on the body of a, of a dead person after a fire, but I've done that. And I know it can be the case with some reporters. And it really, you, you get a very dark sense of humor to deal with it. And I have a very dark sense of humor and a very cynical attitude. But it's, uh, you know, if you don't deal with it and talk about it, uh, you're not going to be straight with yourself and it's going to be difficult later on. Well, when you, when you encounter these situations, how did you deal with it? Because you said you were, in, you were in the media for 30 years or something? Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd been a, a cop briefly before that. Um, so I had, you know, my, my first experience of street crime was as a cop uh, and small town, Kansas, but it was still uh, fatal car accidents, fatal fires, uh, dealing with victims who had been just absolutely devastated. And, uh, you know, you, you develop that dark sense of humor. And uh, I have it to this day. And some things that I see and hear about don't I mean they sort of bounce off. But there are other things like Highland Park that will stay with me forever. And I've yeah. talked about it. You know, I've, I've dealt with that. I, and I have a, a, reflex, a reflex for dealing with it in that I, I express it to friends who will listen. And you just don't let that stuff fester. Because, you know, you can use the, the very trite uh, comparison, but it's like a wound. If you don't treat it, it's going to get worse. Now, you mentioned Highland Park, which was extremely shocking and tragic. And I remember I did visit you in Lake County years ago when you wrote. Um, I talked to you about a novel that you wrote in your media experience. And in your book, you do talk about an active shooter situation. Your book's called Escaping the Ozone. And Escaping the Ozone. Um, what is it? Uh, Situational uh, intuition, situational awareness, and keeping safe. Okay, first of all, what is the ozone? The ozone is is that zone that we're in sometimes uh, when we are not focused on anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, it is the oblivious zone when we are in our heads and walking along, listening to our tunes, or watching what's on our screen, or sitting on the L and watching our screen. And there is life happening all around us. And some of that life uh, involves people who see us being oblivious, having our head in the clouds and uh, take advantage of it. And so for the active shooter, uh, shooter situation, which happened in Highland Park, you do have a chapter on that. So what should people do? Because we're just well, going to events. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing that we have to take a big step back from and look at before anything happens. Uh, in the middle of it, you've got very limited chances, yeah. uh, as people found. I mean, I, I talked to, to people who, uh, one guy who hid his kids in a dumpster, uh, you know, people who were just running everywhere. And you don't know. I mean, that's the, that's the advantage that these predators have over us, is they know what they're going to do. And most of us don't have the slightest clue. 
So what I try to do is is take a step back, and and I've had people tell me, well, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna look at it this way. Well, it's it's the safest way to look at it, and that is evaluate where you're going. You know, if if you're going to a, a concert, if you're an outdoor con- indoor concert, outdoor concert, um, if you're going to a parade, know the route, um, check it out beforehand, walk it, drive it, and just see what's there. And what will likely be there when the parade or the or the concert is is going on? Um, if you if you walk down a city street, you'll see places that you can. And it's it's sad that we have to look at stuff like this, but this is sort of the sweep that that the Secret Service does before a dignitary comes to town. Mm-hmm. They're looking at what the roofs look like. They're looking at what kind of barriers are in the street. You know what doors are going to be open. They secure a lot of that for, for a visit of a dignitary, but in the, in the case of a parade, you're, you're gonna have stores that are open. Um, you're gonna have places that you can run down into. Know where those are. Uh, it's sort of like when you go to a restaurant or any other place, you need to know your exits uh, when you first walk in. Well, wh- when you're outside, you don't necessarily have an exit. You're gonna have to create one for yourself. And you, know, so you stand in front of a building uh, that's open. And uh, you know that the door is going to be unlocked, you maybe even check on that day. Uh, and that's where you stand. And if something happens on the street, you get inside and get behind something as quickly as you can. Um, if you know, if you're on the street, and there are cars parked along the way, get behind a car. It, you know, the sheet metal of a car isn't going to necessarily stop a bullet. But if you can get behind the engine block or behind a a couple of good tires, you've got a better chance than being out in the open. The thing that is sort of my go-to is that I listen as much as I look around. And you, yeah. you can't be watching a, a you know, a, a concert, for example, and kind of have your mind just on the music or looking at your phone or checking your messages and being oblivious to everything else that's going on. You have to look around. But see, what's difficult about that is you enjoy the concert. Sure. So of course, you're going to pay attention. Well, and it's going to be a it's going to be a way that you need to 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 train your mind to get off that for just a little bit. You know, every few minutes, look around, see what's going on around you. Um, I think that the element of surprise is the thing we get the that kind of shock effect when something surprising happens. It's called a startle effect. And it, it takes away a couple of very valuable seconds uh, from your reaction time. Um, I remember listening to a witness uh, last summer who was at uh, Great America and heard shooting, stood there, didn't react. She knew it was shots, but until other people started moving, she didn't move. Mm. And that's a critical thing. If you hear what you think is gunfire, under any shape or form. If, if it's on the 4th of July, of course, you're gonna be a little distracted by the thought that it's fireworks, but most places you're not gonna hear gunfire, uh, thank goodness. But if you're at a concert, or if you're inside at, at a restaurant, um, if you're in a meeting in your office and you hear something like that, assume the worst, assume it's gunfire and react, get off the mark, don't stay where you are. However, you did mention in the book about those clubs and you said you said that um, security sprayed mace, 
mace. It's raid mace. And yeah, yeah. it's raid mace. And then people thought it was poisoning and they did run. And then people they did. Died. And they stacked up behind a door. And the thing that, that we, what I really recommend is that we know alternatives. It's, uh, it's a case really of we need to change our thinking to always think in terms of, and it's, it's a damnable thing that we have to do, really, because we want to get out and enjoy our lives. We don't want to think that we're always under the gun. Mm -hmm. And I should also say the chances of being victimized by a, an active shooter um, are, are marginal. They really are. You know, the percentages are just not there. But the one time it happens, if you can know what's going on immediately or even see something beginning to happen and get out, you're going to be ahead of the crowd. And that, you know, street crime is a lot more likely uh, to happen to you than an active shooter. Mm. Um, so anything or even being nearby when there's a domestic, uh, you know, the, they determined, I think, that one of the shootings recently in California um, for the Lunar New Year was, uh, was a man intent on getting his ex-wife. Uh, one of the shootings in Texas, a horrible uh, church shooting, was uh, somebody going after their, their relative, or their, I think it was maybe his ex-wife too. But the thing is, we can always be aware of what's going on around us. It's not necessarily going to be a negative thing, but it's always a good idea to have your head up. And as John Howell on the WLS keeps reminding me, the head on the swivel. You got to be looking around. And, and you said that you practice it. And I think everybody needs to keep an eye on what's going on around them and to be, be listening and watching particularly. Uh, the listening is, is invaluable. Uh, we don't want to discount that because oftentimes you can hear a fight start uh, before anything really happens. What I've been taught to do and what I try to do is even if I go into a coffee shop, after a while, you know what the ambient noise level is. Mm -hmm. you know, that's the noise level that you're used to when you're sitting and relaxing someplace. If that ramps up suddenly, if somebody starts yelling, I was at a drugstore the other day and somebody started yelling. Mm -hmm. And I immediately moved away from that. Right. And it got a little bit more intense and I left the store. Uh, yeah. The old me probably would have stuck around to see if there was a story. But you, you don't want to get in on other people's business like that. How do you stay, stay safe on the CTA? Uh, there really aren't a lot of places to, to, to run. Yeah. except into another car. But I think that the key is that you get away from whatever's happening and you, you watch to see if it's starting. And sometimes you can see it on a train. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you can see it on a bus. A bus would be even worse. But you have to watch the people who are getting on. And frankly, if you see somebody who looks like they're about to start a fight, uh, you yank the cord and get off okay. if you can there are some places that you're just going to be trapped. And I don't know what to say about that, really, because okay. the, the old axiom in the, in the uh, personal protection business is um, if, you, uh, if somebody really wants you dead, you're going to get dead Gosh. because they're going to keep coming. And that's pretty grim. But the way we avoid that is to have a heads up attitude, to not be sitting on the, on the L reading our our phones or, or watching a video or listening to the music and just zoning out. There was a, a media professional. I saw the story along uh, probably a, maybe this time last year or sooner of a guy who got his head broken because 
he, uh, he was focused on his phone. Somebody yanked it out of his hands. He got up to give chase and got nailed from behind. But what about situations on platforms, you know, on CTA platforms? You got to keep an eye out. That's the thing. And no, there are places that you can run, obviously not straight in front of you if you're standing waiting for a train, but you can uh, dodge down the stairs. If it's starting at the top of the stairs, uh, move as far away from it as you can and get whatever barrier between you that you can. Um, If nothing lie flat, uh, if somebody's shooting, uh, hopefully the, uh, you know, that will give you a, maybe a, a skosh of protection. But like I say, there are some places that you're out in the open and you're, you're basically naked. Okay. And now react. That's the thing. You've got to be ready to react. You know, it's, it's a case of if you're threatened by something or you see a situation developing, if you see it developing or hear it starting, you've got a little bit of an opportunity to protect yourself more than you would if it just happens right on top of you and you, you're not aware of it. Well, one thing you said in the book, well, a couple of things, don't engage even when you're driving, which is wisdom, Absolutely. of course. Try to be as peaceable and as kind as you can be all the time. Um, and that will solve a few problems. And then also, this is a really interesting uh, piece of advice. Pay as you go phone. Instead, when, when somebody's on a date, when you're going to go on a date with somebody and oh. instead of having your regular cell phone. Yeah. Get a phone that, that uh, is not necessarily registered to you. And there are ways to do it. Um, the pay-as-you-go phones are a good way to do it. Uh, there are ways to get numbers that will redial you if someone calls it. Uh, Google has a, a, a Google phone, I believe it is, that uh, will give you a phone number. And uh, it, it isn't your number. It isn't registered to you. Um, and it doesn't have your address. Uh, but it will relay a call instantly to your phone. Mm-hmm. Another way to do it is to is to have oh, it's Google Voice. You mean, do you mean Google Voice? A Google Voice. A Google Voice. Sorry, yeah, that's exactly what it is. But there are ways that you can do that, and when you call out, of course, you can always block your number. But for for the phone that you can buy for sixty dollars, is that something that you discard, or do, can you keep it and re? Oh no, you can keep it and reload it. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that was um, good advice. Yeah, and 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 it's it it may be where you eventually where where you have a plan, but I've registered for those phones without using my real name, mm-hmm. uh, and sometimes I will use my real name, but I won't use my address. I'll I'll come up with a fake address. Another thing you said is um, if you're in a situation, even with an active shooter, you should get them in the eyes. I never yeah. even thought of that. Um, attack them in the eyes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I never thought of that. Yeah. If you're close enough and you don't want to intentionally get close enough, unless that's the last resort, but yeah, you want to hit them someplace where it's going to hurt the most. And in the eyes, one of the things I recommend is a, you know, if you're in an office, for example, or anywhere near where there's a fire extinguisher, use the fire extinguisher as your weapon. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can hit with it and pretty well fracture somebody's skull. uh, But you can also spray it with, uh, you know, and that chemical is not fun to have in your face. Yeah. It also but, is a cloud effect too. But the thing about Mace, uh, you also mentioned Mace, of course, police have told us, you know, pe- us people, city dwellers to use it. But um, you said you should not use Mace unless you're, or it's a good idea to get trained in using Mace. Yes. Pepper spray, Mace, anything like that. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's always a good idea to know the, the effect of it. 
and the distance that you can shoot from. Um, and I don't know, I've never, I haven't checked recently, but uh, Illinois is pretty careful with their laws. And I don't know whether you can, and this is something I should know, but um, I don't carry mace anymore. So it's not a question for me, okay. but uh, know, know the law where you're going to carry it and uh, don't use it, you know, uh, treat it like a, uh, an offensive weapon. Don't use it on somebody unless you're first threatened by them. And okay, so my, I'm wondering, how come you went from media into security? You said you were the head of your church security. It's always been an interest of mine. I mean, after you hang around cops and after you've been a cop for a while, yeah. uh, you know, my whole feeling was that I wanted to be able to protect people. Yeah. And churches are kind of an unusual uh, case. Um, you know, you think you're going to be safe going to church. Right. And in probably 90 percent of the churches in this country, you, you probably are. Yeah. But it's a it's a situation where you go into a building and you sit down with your back to the door and the door is open behind you. Anybody else who wants to come in. So and you're focused straightforward. Uh, you're not looking at what's behind you normally, and you're in a in a closed room uh, where there may not be that many exits, and there are a lot of people to get out those exits. It's like a movie theater. So I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about all the the cases that I've read about of violence in churches, and uh, it just struck me I could use some of my background to, uh, especially some of my cynicism and my suspicion to put together a team that would be able to watch for, at least watch for uh, any problems that would be developing. And that's why I include a large section of the yes. book, uh, you know, about that, because uh, churches consider themselves pretty safe. Um, I've had lots of discussions with pastors about how security isn't necessary. Yeah. And actually I, that chapter is excellent. It's the last chapter and one thing that's interesting that you said was you said use certain adolescents to not necessarily be on the front line, but to use like a walkie talkie or be in the office in order to call um, 911 if needed. Yeah, you want to get, I think, and I've always been a, an advocate of, of uh, involving young people in the church or in the house of worship. Uh, there are a lot of things that they can do and the, the mature adolescents want to help. Um, I had uh, four or five uh, teenagers who were just fascinated by the idea of security and they watch everything and they see things oftentimes that adults don't see. Um, I, I can't tell you the number of times when one of my uh, teenage coworkers saw something that the rest of us adults had missed because we were involved in a conversation or looking for the heavy stuff, uh, you know, coming in the front door, but they noticed um, I remember one case of somebody noticing a, uh, a person coming in a back door. That time we had, didn't lock all our doors. Now this, that church does, but uh, came in a back door and was looking for his ex-wife. Mm. Um, and he was totally a guy that you'd want to keep an eye on. And for the next three weeks, we did. Mm. But the first person to notice him was uh, a very observant uh, 19 or 20 year old, 18, 19, 20 year old, who said he just didn't look right because he'd listened to the training that he'd had. He didn't look right for the environment. He didn't look like he was there to worship. And he kept asking about where, if anybody had seen his ex-wife. So sometimes these uh, these young people really are more on the ball than than we are. 
Yeah. And one thing, speaking of the locked doors, you said it's important that it pushes out because the problem with uh, the E2 club is it did not yes. push out. Yeah. And most, most doors in public buildings have uh, at least a push bar on them. And at least in the, the churches that I've been to, uh, they easily swing or they have a push bar that can, uh, if you want to lock the door, the push bar can be locked. And we did that and doors that we weren't using all the time. But the one other thing that I, I offer and recommend is that uh, in a church, particularly, you channel people through just a couple of doors so that you can keep an eye on them. And I mean a physical eye, not a camera eye, because oftentimes, uh, you know, you, I, I remember I was in a store downtown and watched two people shoplift, very popular clothing store. And I saw two people shoplifting. And I said, I went up to the manager and I said, did you catch that on your cameras? Oh, the cameras are broken. Hmm. We, we can't watch them. And, you know, we just let them go now. I don't know that. I mean, that was four or five years ago, but, um, you know, they, they would see somebody uh, shoplift something and they didn't want to chase them down and they didn't want to be at risk. So they really kind of turned a blind eye to it. But you well, can't do that with a with a person to person crime. OK, so. How do you stay safe in those situations or how do you prevent crime? What should they be doing? Well, I think it's to, to stay safe because yeah. more and more you see people who are willing to fight to get what they want. Yeah. Uh, and you don't know. I mean, I, I used to, to, to caution um, our church. I wanted our church to be open and welcoming to everybody. Uh, we occasionally would have people who were homeless come in and ask for money or, you know, ask for a ride someplace or food or whatever. And I, I want churches to be able to, and houses of worship any, of any kind, right. to be able to be welcoming to that and be able to service people like that and help them. Uh, but you have to be in any situation. If you don't know the person and they're asking you for money, you have to be aware of the fact that they may be carrying a weapon to back up their request. Mm -hmm. And you just have to keep a closer eye on them. Be friendly, uh, but somewhat distant. Keep your distance and, uh, and know that, uh, you know, if you say no, uh, or even if you say yes, that they could come out with a weapon. So you want to keep enough distance that uh, you don't get into trouble that way. And particularly with businesses, I would say that the hands-off approach is probably the best, uh, unless you've got a security guard who's trained to deal with that kind of thing. But if you're a clerk at a, at a clothing store or a, a jewelry store, a, a cosmetic store, um, if somebody comes in and tries to steal something, get a good look at who they are, remember the description. Hopefully the store has working cameras to back you up, but I would not engage. And mm -hmm. I think any, any store owner who tells his people to do that is asking for a real liability problem. You're listening to the Radio Girl Podcast with Margaret Larkin. And thanks to Jeff Davis is at jeffdavis.com. And I just started training at WGN Radio in their newsroom. I'll be producing and voicing news stories there. I left WGN Radio in 2014 to go to WBBM News Radio, and I'm really glad I'm back with some great people. Yeah, and one thing I noticed um, in back to places of worship, some people feel like if they see somebody suspicious, they're being judgmental mm -hmm. by even thinking a certain way. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? Well, uh, it depends on what you're seeing and, and how much of a threat they are. If you really feel 
that they could be a threat to you or the congregation at large, uh, you want to report it to somebody. If you're not trained, don't take action yourself. Don't mm. confront them. But talk to somebody who can confront them and, and get a, a better idea of what their, their motives are. But that's why I tell churches to engage everybody who comes through the door. Don't let anybody go unnoticed. And there's obviously a, a very good side to that because people oftentimes want to be noticed. Um, they, they may not necessarily want to be talked to, but they want to be acknowledged in some way. Um, and it's a good idea to just acknowledge everybody, see everybody, uh, and not just glance at them, but, but take a good hard look at, at who's coming through the door and, and uh, judge for yourself how much contact you want to have with them. But a welcome smile and a hello, and even a handshake in some situations, I think if, if you're in a church and you're greeting at the door, uh, I think that's always appropriate. But okay, of course, there's a more popular aspect of safety because I just heard a total nightmare story about somebody who met somebody on a dating app. It was like super scary. You give some oh, really okay. good advice for that. Okay. So what do you, what advice do you have for that? Well, I think the, the key is to be as uh, obscure as you can be yeah. uh, initially. You, you don't want to talk about where you live. If you have kids, you don't want to talk about where you work. Uh, you don't want to give away a whole lot. Um, you know, and I think that the, the pushier the people, uh, the more the red flag goes up. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a tough way to meet somebody. And back in the day I was there too. Um, fortunately for a number of years, I have not been engaged in that, but I've talked to many people who are, and there are some very sketchy sites, uh, where you just have to be real careful what you tell people. Uh, and if you arrange to meet, you want to arrange to meet in a public place. Uh, you don't want to have somebody pick you up at your front door. That may be the way you grew up and the way you were taught, but it doesn't work nowadays. And I think anybody who's at a dating age nowadays would realize that there are more pitfalls on the initial first date than uh, there ever were back in the back in the old days when when your parents were were uh, dating. But people don't meet at church socials that much anymore. It is the online stuff. And you need to know what online service you're using. And frankly, why you're there. You know, are you there to meet a mate who will be your friend and your companion forever? Or are you looking for a hookup? And, you know, you can get in trouble either way. But as long as your objectives are clear, you know what the level of danger could be that you're faced with. And it's terrible to have to say the level of danger on a date but as you indicated, it can be a very scary experience if you don't evaluate who you're going to be spending time with. Yes, yeah, so that's where the burner phone comes in, which is excellent advice. Another thing that a lot of people do, which the show Catfish really talks about that people should do, is if you meet somebody, you should do an online search of them to see who they really are. I don't know Absolutely. why people I don't know why people today don't do that because we have the internet. I tell a story in Escaping the Ozone, which is absolutely true of a friend of mine who was a, uh, an attorney and a, a real estate person. Um, she uh, was involved in commercial real estate and she was dating on a number of different services. And she met a guy who she thought was great. Uh, he had a great story to tell. He said that he'd uh, been a practicing attorney for a long time, but he'd given that up and that he was uh, you know, into real estate now, investments, 
she just really sounded good. But he started to come on a little strong. And my friend is nothing if not a suspicious, cynical person, somewhat like I am. And uh, she decided to run just a Google check on him. And she found out that this guy that she actually had met and spent time with and had had over for a night was not single. He had a family he was going home to. And he hadn't given up his law license. He was forced to, uh, that he'd been involved in an embezzlement, I believe it was, and uh, had done some time behind bars. And in the process had lost his law license. So essentially about 90% of the great story that he spun uh, was false. And there are an awful lot of people out there who can tell a really good story, you know, and, and have you believing anything. But one of the things that I always tell people is listen long enough and liars usually reveal themselves. Uh, if you listen closely enough and long enough to what people are saying, you'll find inconsistencies in their stories and eventually that there'll be enough there to peel back. But I would always do an internet search. I would always look yeah. at the name of the person and, and try to dig up as much as you can. And I'm more obviously visible online now. And if you look hard enough, yeah, you can find my address. Mm -hmm. uh, may not even take that much. Mm -hmm. But back when I was dating online 40, 30, 40 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, it was not as easy to find me. And it would certainly, if I were going to have to do that again, which at my age, I don't think I would be, but uh, I would make sure to mask my identity as best I could. I would not be above using a fake first name and just getting to know somebody on that basis. Hmm. But if you meet somebody online, we're, we're ahead of ourselves a little bit, because if you meet somebody online, uh, the first thing you want to do is evaluate them on, online. And so many apps, from what I understand now, from people who use them, uh, have calling systems where you can, you know, call somebody through the app and you don't have to, to use your phone number. There are a lot of ways to block your internet address. So I think that investing a little time in that is a good idea. Google Voice is certainly a good idea. But uh, giving away as little as you can while you're finding out as much as you can, it's almost an interrogation process. It certainly is, a, is an interview process. And if you spend any time in HR, which some people have, uh, you have a pretty good idea of how to, to evaluate people. Uh, but if not, uh, talk to others and find out what they've done. Uh, read the book. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Escaping you, the Ozone has some good tips in there about it. It's data. very good. But okay, my question is, though, you said if people talk long enough, you find out their lives. What are some examples? Well, if somebody talks long enough, they may reveal a lie just in, inadvertently. You know, they may tell you that they've got three kids and, and they're married and they live in, uh, or they're, they're, they're divorced, not married. They're, they're divorced and they, uh, you know, they haven't seen their, their family for a while. Uh, but then they talk about going to their kid's baseball game, or they talk about something that they talked about recently with their ex-wife or their ex-husband, wow. should probably say ex-spouse. But uh, there, are, there are ways, if you listen closely enough, that oftentimes you can find an inconsistency in what people are saying. And it's a shame we have to listen for that. You know, most people who are dating meet somebody who they think is great and they want to get together with them right away. I don't think that's necessarily the best way to, to handle it if you're meeting somebody online. 
Right. Okay. But of course, you know about marriages where people, even before the internet, people met each other. And then it turns out the spouse turned out to be not who they said they were. So it does happen in life. It's happened throughout history. It's just that the internet has sped it up, I think. Right. And it's in that way, the internet is dangerous because it lets you hide. And what are we talking about? That you're, I'm I'm advising people to hide. Um, And they may find that other people that they're meeting are doing the same thing. And that's not a bad thing. But I think it all comes down to getting to know somebody well enough before you meet them in person or before you even talk to them on the phone. But I think talking on the phone is important because you get an idea. I have a friend who had a great conversation with a woman that he really connected with and wanted to go out with. And he found out it was a man. Wow. Uh, You know, because they hadn't talked on the phone um, and the, the person was resistant to talking on the phone. And, you know, that was, I think that's probably a very unusual case. But I, I think just taking the time to have an old-fashioned conversation and knowing where that conversation is going to go. If the other person starts talking about things that make you uncomfortable and you can't shift away from that topic, then you know that they're trying to control you. Uh, if they start trying to team with you before you're ready and saying, oh, we'll have to do this or we'll have to do that. Or, you know, down the road, maybe we can go here together or you know, maybe we can go to California, you know, and uh, this summer focus on the whole point of the first meeting is to get to know somebody. And if they're talking about all their future plans for you, uh, that's another red flag. Yeah. But getting to know, for example, where you live, uh, whether you're, what's your marital status, uh, where the places are that you like to hang out, where you work. I think all of that takes a while to get to. I mean, you can say you're in public relations or you can say that you're in radio. uh, But to reveal more than that, uh, I think is, you know, you want to keep the information that's closest to you, closest to you until you really trust the person that you're talking to. But I also think another way is you look them up and then you go to their LinkedIn or something and then you can see if you know other people who are common because there, yes. you know, I may meet somebody from Tennessee, but they may know my friend in Ohio, and at least I can, you know, ask the friend. Or check their their friends list on Facebook. You know, I'll I'll do a quick check of people that I meet just out of curiosity because I'm a nosy person, mm-hmm. and and it's sometimes very revealing to look at their Facebook profile or multiple profiles. Uh, I remember that I did check somebody once, and they were. Uh, not using the correct name, their real name. And when I checked that name, they had some some uh, convictions on their record. Uh, somebody who said that they don't drink very much. Well, maybe that's the case now, but they'd been popped three or four times for DUI. Yeah. So it's it's a good idea to to do that as much as much background check as you can. Do your due diligence as you would if you were uh, researching a job, for example, or talking to a job applicant. Yeah, because um, what I do, I told this person who somebody told me about the most nightmarish, like I said, the most nightmarish dating situation they encountered recently. And then I told them about doing an online search. And one example I gave was, let's say I meet somebody and they're being sort of vague. Yeah. I'm going to do an online search because like, why are you yeah, being vague? Sure. We're meeting each other. Sure. So Well, and, in the, and the older you are when you're dating, you know, in your 40s or your 50s. Yeah, you look at stuff that somebody did when they were 20. And you, you know, you give them a little bit of room to, to say that, 
you know, yeah, I was, uh, I was stealing cars when I was 19 and 20, but, you know, now I'm a lawyer and, and I don't, you know, I don't do that kind of thing anymore. So you give people room to change. Right. But the things that you want to watch for are people who are controlling. They always want to control the conversation. And what kind of conversation do they want to have? Do they want to have a, a nice conversation about the, the bands they like or what's on TV or the movies they've seen? Or do they want to talk about sex? You know, or do they want to talk about all the drugs that they do? You know, or the risky situations that they've gotten themselves into? You know, more than once I've talked to people who, who say, well, yeah, I drink a little bit. Uh, and then you find out when you really talk to them that, well, yeah, they do Coke if it was handed to them. Wow. Uh, you know, and that's, you, you really, after a while, you have to become a good judge of people. And how do you do that? It's by getting to know people and having conversations and being well-read and knowing what, for example, I recently talked to somebody who'd been married to a, a narcissist for a number of years. And it's a good idea to read up on things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a lot of books out there on aberrant behavior. Mm-hmm. And some of them will give you a clue. I, I have a, a, in, in college, I had a good friend, and I talk about this in the book, who met a guy that we all thought was great. Uh, and he worked for the local prosecutor. He was an intern at the prosecutor's office. He was in law school. And we just thought he was the life of the party. He was a great guy. And all of a sudden, pretty soon, we started not seeing that couple around. They used to be very active. And then all of a sudden, they were more closed in on themselves. And we didn't see her a whole lot. And then we found out that they had gotten engaged. And her excuse was, well, you know, I'm getting ready for the wedding and I don't really have time. And, but you also, wherever you saw her, you saw him. And even out shopping, you know, going to class, he'd always be there and meet her when she came out of class. Uh, so they got married and it was all happy and, and flowers and everything. And the first night they were married on their, their wedding night, he threw her down a flight of stairs. And she later told us that that had been a problem, that he had been violent, that he had been controlling, that he'd tried to separate her from her family, that it was, uh, you know, really what, what we looking at it from the outside would call a nightmare mm. uh, because he was trying to isolate her. And that's what a lot of people do. And women do it like men do. You know, you can be the victim of it, uh, either gender and whatever your sexuality is you can be victimized by somebody who's just, you know, vicious. And that's the kind of thing that's far more common than the likelihood you're going to be a victim of street crime is that you'll be, be involved in some kind of an unpleasant uh, domestic situation. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes people who are in those situations see no way out. And if they're married to them, uh, married to that problem and, you know, uh, have kids, you know, they're even more locked in and they don't know where they can go. There's always some place you can go. There's always some place you can go for help. Uh, and that's the, that's the one message I try to get across to people is that, you know, you're never alone. You know, whatever kind of abuse you're suffering, uh, you can call for help. Or you can let somebody know that it, this is a situation that you're in that's potentially dangerous. There's always a way. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I, was, I was thinking one of the places that we can assume that we're safe is at home. And a lot of people, even when they're at home, are alert to what's going on outside. Or before they step out, they're looking out a window to see what's going on. 
um, at home, I cite an instance in Escaping the Ozone of, um, and this is, was a horrible, horrible case. But a friend of mine, uh, her mom was uh, known in the neighborhood. She had a lot of friends in the neighborhood and she tried to befriend older people. And she had an older neighbor who she hadn't seen for a day. And usually she'd see her coming out to pick up a paper or going out or whatever. And uh, she saw a strange car in their driveway. And she happened to ha be having coffee with some with another couple, an older couple. And she said, well, uh, Elaine is, is, you know, she hasn't been out and I don't recognize that car. Let's go over and see if she's okay. Well, they, the three of them walked into a home invasion and Elaine, their friend was dead. They, the home invaders had killed her. Uh, the home invader then kidnapped my friend's mom and her two elderly friends and took them out in the country intending to kill them because they were witnesses. Uh, my friend's mom was a quick talker. She was married to a shrink. Uh, she knew people very well and she knew how people think. And she was able to convince him that the first person that he killed in the house wasn't dead and he should go back and check on her. And if he could get an ambulance or something uh, that really he'd, he wouldn't have a problem. And he believed her until his accomplice halfway back to the house told him, no, she, she's lying to you. And at, that point, my friend, my friend's mom, had taken off looking for help. They were way out in the country. The elderly couple she was with hid. The home invaders went back, found the elderly couple, and killed them. Mm. My friend's mom got away. Now, that's where checking on your neighbors can get you in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, but she was alert enough to see that a problem might have been starting, and she, her intuition was telling her that there was a problem and what she should have done was just call the police. And oftentimes we think we can solve a problem that's minor and it ends up being a lot more than we want to deal with. So exactly. what I always say is, if you think there's a problem, call the people who are trained to handle it. Yeah. I even put my, you know, the club, you know, for, uh, I, I use the club uh, every single place I go. I don't care if I'm in like Winnetka, I still use it. Sure, not a bad idea. It locks your car down. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a good idea. I think anything that you can do to, to, to protect your valuables is good. Uh, one of the tiny things that became evident to me, I, when, I was, uh, when I was a cop and I worked vice for a while, we would do stupidity checks of the cars in the parking lots of the clubs. Because oftentimes we'd, we'd roll up on a car uh, parked next to us and you'd look inside and there'd be you know, evidence of drug use. And it's an immediate bust if you can pop them for that. Mm. So we'd always do stupidity checks. And one of the stupid things that I kept noticing was, and I had noticed it in almost every car we, we would check, is that there was either a purse on the seat or somebody's ID, their address was showing on an envelope that uh, was sitting on the, on, the, on the deck or on the seat. So I went through a parking lot before I gave a presentation a couple of years ago, security presentation. And I noticed that there were half a dozen cars that are, were set up like that. Somebody had their purse, uh, it was on the floor, but it was visible. And no, the car wasn't locked. Um, I found a car with the keys in it, not running. And I found a number of cases where people left packages with their address showing. Well, what's that tell a potential thief? That the person is here, not at home. It's during the day. They're probably in the store for a while. Maybe if I zip over to their house, I can get in without anybody knowing. Mm -hmm. Or if it's a you know, if it's somebody who's targeting someone for an assault, they know where they live. 
So there are a lot of little tricks that you can do that are just everyday kinds of things. Cover up your address if you get out of the car. Don't leave your purse in the car. Don't leave your wallet. Don't leave your keys. Don't leave your kid in the back seat in his uh, car seat for even two minutes if you've got to run into the post office. Yeah. I, I say that and you think that it's intuitive, but I see it every almost every time I'm out. You know, if you're giving your car to a, uh, a guy to park it for you, a parking attendant, uh, give them only the car key. Don't give them a ring of keys with your house key on it. Making wax impressions is kind of old school, yeah. but it can be done and that they then have a key to your house. And if you, one of the things that, that I've heard of recently is that they'll get into a car and call up the GPS for whatever home location is set on the GPS. And that way they know where you live. So what I do is that my home location is the local police department. That's the address of my home. And uh, if they want to look and go there when I'm out at a party or something like that, they're going to drive right, in, right into the parking lot of the police station. Well, yeah. what about carjackings? Those are terrifying because yeah. like the, yesterday I was in traffic on the Stevenson. I thought, okay, if somebody carjacked me, I can't resist. I can't drive anywhere. I'm stuck in traffic. Right. And that's been news. So how do what do people do? I always try to leave at least a car length in front of me when I stop. It, it irritates the people behind me. Right. But I always try to leave room in front of me, a little wiggle room to where I can scoot out, even if I have to drive into traffic or up over the sidewalk. You know, if you're in a narrow street, you got traffic both ways, snow, cars parked on either side, it's definitely a problem. Mm -hmm. And the thing that, that I would always say about that is your stuff is not your life. If you have to give up your car because somebody's pointing a gun at your face, do it. But don't get in that situation in the first place. You know, stay on wider streets if you can. Don't pull up all the way behind a car that's in front of you. Give yourself enough room that you can get out if you need to. Uh, always have room to drive around the car in front of you if you can. Don't get into a situation where you're packed into traffic if you can avoid it. And in Chicago at rush hour, that's, that's a tough task. If you're coming in from the suburbs into the city, there's plenty of public transportation. And it's a lot cheaper probably than, than buying gas. But yeah, carjacking is, is tough and you have to plan your route, know where you're gonna, gonna get into a, a squeeze situation and try to avoid that. Don't ever sit in your car and leave it run. Uh, if you're going someplace, go park, get out and go in. When you come out, get in and leave. Uh, even in a parking garage, get in and leave, lock the doors and leave. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I tell people is uh, once you go to uh, an ATM, get in your car and leave. Don't sit there counting your money. Yeah. Uh, that's just not, it, 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 there's no situation where that's wise. I remember I was at an ATM in the middle of the night. Again, I was tired and not thinking and got the scare of my life when somebody came up and knocked on the window when I had my head down doing something else. Uh, it wasn't a robbery. It was a guy who was impatient to get to the ATM, but um, you know, it could have been a guy with a gun. Well, another great piece of advice um, I heard many, many years ago, which I do now, is when you exit um, a shop, um, mm -hmm. a store like Jewel or whatever, and you should do a survey of the entire parking lot you and bet. keep looking around. You get back because some people have been surprised and robbed or something. Well, I think it's again, it goes back to knowing your surroundings. 
as much as you can in any circumstance, stand back before you do whatever you're going to do, even leaving your house and look at the street, look at the parking lot, you know, see who's around. If, if you're leaving work late at night and the only other car in the parking lot is a van with, with blackened windows parked right next to your car, maybe it's a good idea to call for help mm -hmm. and have somebody at least walk out with you. Yeah. You know, those are the kinds of things that a lot of people don't notice that you really need to be heads up to catch. Uh, I remember a situation where a friend of mine in the media walked out of a drive-in drive restaurant, fast food place in the city, went in, he was really hungry, had his mouth ready for this burger, and he turned around and walked right back out, got in his car and left. And I talked about it, I, I talk about it in the book because I asked him, you know, afterward, what scared you off? And he said, well, the people just didn't look right. The, the people behind the counter had kind of frozen expressions and uh, the, the people standing in front just looked like they weren't right. And the place was robbed a couple of minutes after he left. So again, be aware of your surroundings. That's the, that is the key to almost any kind of, of uh, personal security that you can imagine is always keep your eyes open and don't block your intuition. You know, the minute you're focused on something else is when something bad is going to happen to you. Yeah. I don't know a whole lot of people who said that they walked into a situation and saw a guy with a gun and knew it was going to happen and didn't react. Mm -hmm. uh, nine times out of 10, you can see in street crime, particularly, you can see it starting. Yeah. You can see that there's a problem and don't go where trouble is. Mm -hmm. You know, if you if you know a neighborhood's bad, don't drive there in the middle of the night. Right. And for God's sake, don't buy a gun unless you know what you're doing with it. Yeah, and you have a section of that. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 more dangerous to you. Uh, I I've talked to more people who are afraid of crime, who want to just go out and buy a gun and and uh, get licensed and be able to carry it. And I've been in classes and taught classes with people who think that they're going to carry a gun into the mall and and shoot up the next mall shooter. And it's not that easy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I always say to people, if they're buying a gun for self-defense, what are you defending against and how far are you prepared to go? Mm -hmm. The gun is a great tool. I have nothing against guns, but in the wrong hands, and they could be your hands if you don't know what you're doing with it. First of all, you're not going to know how to react. Your training is key. And how do you get trained to do something, but you do it over and over and over again until it's repetitive, until you know exactly how you're going to react. And going to the range with a handgun twice a week or once a week or once a month, you, you know, you'll learn how to shoot at a piece of paper. Well, very few people have been attacked by pieces of paper. You need to know how to react to a situation like that. Take a class. There are hundreds of self-defense classes that teach interactively. They don't just put you in front of a target. They teach you how to respond in, in a force on force is what they call it situation. But don't buy a gun and just throw it under your bed. That's crazy. Or leave it in the car. It'll get stolen nine times out of 10. Mm -hmm. And don't carry it unless you know how to use it and really know how to use it and are prepared to kill somebody who's coming after you. Yeah, and one thing you mentioned in that section of your book is 
the media reaction to what you're doing? Are you prepared to defend yourself in the media? That Can you talk about that? The, the thing that people don't think about because they're even even young people who don't have didn't grow up like I did on westerns and detective shows, they they grow up with these these movies, where force is always met with superior force, and the good guy is always able to draw a gun, or a laser, or you know whatever, and overcome the force that is coming at them, or a lightsaber, and we don't think about the practical use of whatever weapon it is that we're using to protect ourselves. Um, as I said, guns are great tools, but that's what they are. They're tools and tools don't act by themselves. And if you don't know what you're doing, here's what'll happen. You get into a shooting situation. It's questionable. Either the guy that comes after you didn't have a gun or he did, but you shot and killed him. And it's a situation where you are now the aggressor. And you're always going to be seen as the aggressor. You're going to be, first of all, you're going to be questioned by the police at the scene if you're smart enough to put your gun down when they arrive, before they arrive. Some aren't. You're going to be questioned about your motives. You're going to be questioned about what you were thinking about. You're Mostly the police are going to be looking to see if you were a victim or you were the aggressor. And you are the aggressor, considered to be the aggressor, until you can prove otherwise. You can have your day in court, but you still have to prove what you were doing and that what you're doing was reasonable. And if there's any question of that, you'll end up in prison. And there have been plenty of stories like that of people that defend themselves and then end up having to defend themselves again in court. So you have to know that it's a threat. You have to verbally say, it's a threat. I'm scared. Uh, and you have to be scared. But you're going to be probably detained at the scene. If you're lucky, that's as far as it'll go. They'll take your gun, but they'll probably handcuff you and take you to jail. And you'll need to get a lawyer. There's expense number one. Uh, there are insurance policies that you can get with some of the gun organizations that will pay for your lawyer. Okay, so you've got a lawyer. Already, you are going to end up having an expense, whether they're paying for the lawyer or not. But as you said, then there's the court of public opinion. And you're going to end up probably at some point facing a judge. And any of those appearances, especially in a gun crime, especially in Chicago, is going to be watched by the media. And particularly if it's a questionable uh, scenario involving race or a difference in the person from the victim, somebody's wealthier than the, the attacker or whatever, the, the media are going to seize on gun cases. And the bigger the case it is, the more media attention there's going to be. You're going to have your face splashed all over, at least local TV, or at least in the paper. There's going to be a story about you. Your boss may not like the fact that you just killed somebody, and you may lose your job. And then the victim or the victim's family may sue you, and you'll lose everything else. And you may get convicted because your story is just not that good. You pulled the gun before you should. And these are the kinds of things that you can only learn if you practice, if you go to a class, if you have the proper training, not just shooting at paper targets, but putting you in situations where you have to decide, is it right for me to shoot or not? And that's the only kind of training that's any good. Why do you think people on SWAT teams are on SWAT teams? Because they practice all the time. 
the most of the professional police agencies have requirements for regular retraining of on handguns, even more so now. And some of that training is incredibly involved. Talk to Secret Service agents and see what they had to go through. There are many scenarios that they have to face. Uh, because if you're protecting the president and you shoot an assailant and that bullet goes wide, you hit a little kid in the face. There's no getting over that. Mm-hmm. I've talked to, to police who've done that. Mm-hmm. And there is no getting over that. Let me know what you think. Email me at margaret at radiogirl.us. You can also call or text me at 716-202-TALK. That's 8255. And like the Radio Girl Facebook page. You can find out about who's coming up next, see pictures, listen to audio, and more.